Welcome to the Within Us podcast, where we're all about well-being, mind, body, emotion, and spirit. This is your place for the transformational tools and teachings to tap into mindfulness, emotional awareness, and wellness for the collective and for your life right now. My name is Azriella Jankovic, and I am so glad that you are here. Welcome to the show, everyone. Today is May 18th, and I'm so excited for today's episode. Today's episode has been on deck for a couple of months because we really shifted into some special programming around the events that have been going on in the world and really orienting around wellness. Today's topic is a little bit different, but I also think that it's extremely timely in that we are in so many places now shifting back to work, whether it's working online or even working in person, there is a shift happening. There's a big shift happening where we're thinking about the ways in which we're going to shift into this new future and what is this new workplace that we are creating? What is it going to be built upon? And over the last few months, we've, so many of us have taken away lessons. You know, I'm sure you have through the challenges, whatever it is that you've seen or been going through, taken away really important lessons that you can utilize to build the ideal setting of your future, whatever that's going to look like. So my guest today has some incredible advice for how we can do that, how we can build meaningful relationships, connections, community, and professional relationships with people in our lives. And he bases all of that around ethics. So Jonas and Goldson is our guest for today. And I first discovered his work when I was scrolling through Facebook, surprise, and (laughs) came across a TEDx talk with a man on stage wearing a suit and he had a long beard and a yarmulke. And I thought, wow, how interesting, you know, here is this like obviously Orthodox Jew, maybe rabbi on the TEDx stage. And that's not so common. I think there have only been a few, as I learned from Yonasan, Orthodox Jewish rabbis that have, that have spoken at TED and he's one of them. And his talk was incredible. So that's what really drew me in was what he said. And he spoke about his journey around the world many years ago, hitchhiking, and how he landed in Israel, what he calls a dark corner of theology, and came across teachers that he thought right away he'd have no points of connection with, nothing in common, nothing to learn from. He was coming from the world of academics and philosophy and there was just no way in his mind that this would be of value to him. And because he faced his preconceptions, he was able to actually learn that they were false and make incredible connections with these spiritual teachers and make really meaningful shifts in his own life. And he is now today teaching and speaking around the world, speaking in business contexts. He's written five books and hundreds of articles applying ancient wisdom to the challenges of the modern world. So his TEDx talk is awesome. I'm going to post a link to that in the show notes so that when you finish listening to this, you can also watch his TED and I'm going to bring him on really, really shortly. So I loved speaking with Yonasan so much. And whether you're working or you're staying at home or whatever you're doing right now, I think that he, he brings forth some incredible ideas for how we can connect and how we can move past fear. You know, so often we are seeing the, eye, seeing the world through eyes of, of fear. And a lot of that is intelligent fear. It's the fear that has allowed our ancestors to survive. It is why we're here today. It is intelligent to have fear that keeps us alive but part of what fear does is that it notices differences right it notices the missing piece of the puzzle 
It notices when you see someone who looks different, acts different, sounds different. It's picking out those differences. And more oftentimes than not, we experience a natural threat when we are exposed to difference. So difference can be threatening, but it can also bring a certain element of novelty to our lives and happiness and even register as dopamine in the brain if we take on a certain mindset about diversity and newness and novelty and so a lot of our day-to-day living and coming across people who might seem different than us can be experienced without fear it can be experienced with curiosity so we're going to hear from Jonas on a little bit about how to make meaningful connections and I want to say personally that I've taken on this practice of noticing commonality whenever I see people you know here in Israel it's very very colorful we have people from all different like branches of Judaism and we have all different types of practicing Muslims and Christians and people you'd see from all over the world and and you don't know where they're from or, or what their lives are like but I oftentimes see people I might be sitting on the boardwalk in Tel Aviv and just watching people walk by and I look at them and I think to myself, well, you know, they brushed their teeth this morning just like I did. And they woke up this morning and they ate breakfast just like I did. And they're walking with someone they care about just like I am. And they have dreams just like I do. And I go through all of these things that we might have in common And before I know it, I feel so connected to these strangers. And that is a way that I actively practice loving strangers. And it really works. I'm telling you, it really works. Because it allows us to shift out of this fear, this fear of the unknown, this fear of my thinking, oh, they're different than me. They probably don't believe what I believe. They probably aren't going to like me because we don't believe the same thing. No, gone, finished, it's over. Because I'm so focused on our common humanity. And when we do that, we find the gems. We all have hopes. We all have dreams. We all want to live in a more peaceful world. And we all have so much in common. So I love that practice. It's something that you can do anywhere, anytime, and feel more connected to the people around you. So I love it. I hope you get a lot out of that too. Really, it's just one of so many spiritual practices that are based on ancient, timeless truths that are so relevant today, universal, universally relevant. If you are interested in more spiritual teachings, you can now join me on Wednesdays. I have this circle of insight, open circles happening on Wednesday. This program, along with several other programs that I'm currently running, you can learn more about by visiting my website, drazi.co. That's D-R-A-Z-I dot C-O. All right, with nothing further, I'm so excited to introduce you to Jonasen Goldson. He asks, what is the biggest mistake any leader can make? Believing that you have to choose between being good and being successful. Is your business about purpose or profit? Is your company culture about human values or market value? Do your people work with you or for you? He believes that as an ethical leader, you do not have to choose. It is my honor and my pleasure to introduce you to Jonas and Goldson. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Jonasen Goldson. It is really a pleasure to have you here. I was so taken by your recent TEDx talk when I came across it. It had been recommended and posted in my social media feed. And when I saw the talk, I felt deeply that within it was a message for humanity, really a message that could further our human connection and bring more peace to this world, which is so much in need right now. And it's just an honor to have you here. So I'm, I'm interested to hear from you and a little bit more of the backstory in terms of your talk, which you entitled, How I Became My Worst Nightmare, in which you reflected upon your story 
graduating from college, hitchhiking across the country, and then ending up in Israel. Tell us a little bit about your story and what inspired you to seek. Well, it's a pleasure to be with you, Israel. I'm delighted to be on the show. And uh, I, I, the way you phrased it in your introduction, I think it was just perfect. Before I get into the, the background of the story, I, I taught Jewish high school for 23 years. And when my school closed a few years ago, I tried to figure out what I want to do with my life. What now, now that I'm a grown-up, what am I going to do? And after spending a career trying to communicate to, to Jewish young people the importance, the meaning, the relevance of their own Jewish tradition, I wanted to try to articulate the universality of Jewish values and Jewish teachings. There's so much tribalism in the world. There, there's so much acrimony, so much partisanship. And what Judaism has to offer the world is not only for Jews. It's for all human beings. And so trying to find that, that universal message and the relevance and being able to communicate that to people from every different type of background is very what my, my mission has become. And so in terms of the background, I, as you said, I, I graduated from the University of California with a degree in English. And I was motivated largely because I wanted to write but as I got to the end of my college career, I realized I didn't really have much of a story to tell. I didn't have ideas that were truly my own. And I was very comfortable in my upper middle class uh, life. And so I wanted to challenge myself to break out of that bubble, to put myself in a situation that was going to require me to meet each day not knowing where that day was going to go without anybody to bail me out. And so I came up with this, in hindsight, probably not so wise plan to go hitchhiking cross country. And I, I certainly would not recommend it, certainly not today. It's a much different world than it was back then. I wouldn't be thrilled if my children were doing it uh, any more than my mother was thrilled that I was doing it. But what it did for me was a number of things. It, it gave me that sense that I can't put myself in a situation of utter unpredictability and still find a way to get through from day to day. And as I articulate in the TED Talk, I discovered that when you get in the car, what many drivers want from a hitchhiker is someone to listen. And just like the famous strangers on a train principle, when you know that the person you're talking to, you're never going to see them again, you're never going to have any contact with them, there's no fear of betrayal. So people would open up to me with personal stories that they told me they had never shared with their wives, their, their children, their parents, or their best friends. And I realized that they weren't really talking to me. They were talking to themselves. They just needed someone there to make them comfortable doing it. What I came to appreciate was the importance of listening. Because when we listen to other people, we don't only learn about them. We learn about ourselves. And that helps us recognize our place in the world, our place in society, our unique contribution that every one of us has to make to the society and the cultures in which we live. That's a really beautiful idea. And what a unique way to learn this lesson about our ability to learn from anyone. Absolutely. Um, it's been pointed out that the, word, the words listen and silent have the same letters in them. And, you know, it's such a noisy world today. Uh, we are just inundated with messages, with information, with misinformation. And everybody's trying to talk over everybody else. I mean, if, if you've had the misfortune of watching the, the, the presidential debates that are going on in America right now, uh, it, it's, it's often embarrassing that they're talking over each other they're playing games of gotcha. Oh, you said this 20 years ago. Oh, you did this 15 years ago. Oh, you contradicted yourself between now and, and when you were 30 years old. What if we actually try to hear one another's messages, to find common ground instead of trying to see where we can invalidate one another uh, and see how we can work together and pool our, our intellectual resources? That's, that's how you build a society. And, and we've lost touch with that. Clearly, you're doing it with your podcast. 
it's gratifying to see that there are more and more people trying to reclaim what I like to think of as the rational center. Not, just doesn't mean we all agree on anything. It just means that we moderate our conversations, we listen, we look for ways of understanding and respecting each other and moving forward together. Wow, it's a powerful idea to think about what you mentioned, this idea of, of building a society. And as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of a line from the Talmud, which says something along the lines that only one voice can be heard at a time. I've never really thought of it applied the way you're using it. That, that's really insightful. Because from a practical, as the, the Talmud's talking about a very practical, if you hear two people, even if they're saying the same thing, but if your attention is divided, between two voices, you can't fully focus on either. But what you're saying is, is really in a, more, in a more philosophical and ideological sense, that the, the cacophony of, of voices ends up with us not hearing what anybody is saying about anything. So we're left with, I guess, creating these, these, these theoretical dialogues or more about or maybe ideological dialogues in our own heads, which may not even be what others are saying, but which we're projecting into their words. It's interesting to think about the way that we're conditioned, oftentimes I think in Western society, to respond so quickly and to need to have an answer and to need to be right. And in any case, I, I wish everyone well, and, and we're one human connection at a time working toward peace. So I'm curious if you could share a little bit with us about what you do helping people to communicate more effectively and really promote that possibility to build, whether it's community in a workplace or, or connection in any context. Well, my starting point is ethics. And I happened upon that. I thought about what, what is the totality of, of Jewish teaching all about. One of our most famous teachings, of course, is from Hillel, uh, who says that the entire Torah on one foot is don't do to others what is hateful to you. And when I reflected on that, and I thought, isn't that really the essence of what ethical behavior is about? Recognizing, anticipating, intuiting, how my actions are affecting those around me and affecting the society in which I live. There's so much talk about rights, what I'm entitled to, what I deserve, what society owes me, what other people have to give me. But from a Torah point of view, rights are simply a natural extension that grow out of responsibilities. Instead of demanding what you owe me, what I should be thinking is, what do I owe you? How am I supposed to be conducting myself as you? Because if I acknowledge and focus on my responsibilities to you, and you acknowledge and, and focus on your responsibilities to me, then our rights are naturally going to be taken care of. You're going to be looking out for my rights. I'm going to be looking out for your rights. But if each of us is demanding, I want my, my rights, then we're going to be butting heads constantly. And so that ethical perspective is one in which I'm focused on my responsibilities to my family, my friends, my neighbors, my, my community, my society, and the world at large. And if we would all work to cultivate an ethical mindset, just imagine how, how the world would be functioning. It's, it's, not, it's not Pollyanna. It's, it's recognizing that it's in my own best interest to contribute to creating a world that's a more pleasant place for me to live in. That is beautiful, really empowering, and brings up this possibility for personal responsibility that we can take in any moment for our happiness, to create community, to create connection. What types of issues, what types of challenges and problems do you see in a workplace that hasn't yet been primed with these types of ideas? Well, I think that the ideas are already there. 
We don't need to reinvent the wheel here, but we simply have to remind ourselves, you know, the, the Masosya Sharm, the path of the just, which is uh, perhaps the most influential work of, of ethical wisdom in the last 300 years in Judaism. The first thing he says is, I'm not here to tell you anything you don't know already. But he says that the more familiar ideas become to us, the more easily they're forgotten. Because, you know, it's like conquered territory. I already learned that. I know that. I understand it. I don't need to spend time thinking about it anymore. And when I stop thinking about it, then I start forgetting it. So our natural sense of community is one that if we don't remind ourselves of it on a continuous basis, then we're going to forget it. And certainly if you look in the, in the business world, there are certain businesses that are known for their business culture. You know, here in the Midwest, we fly Southwest Airlines a lot. They have a, a phenomenal reputation. Everybody likes to fly them. Everybody likes to shop at Trader Joe's. I mean, Isn't I, that the truth? I miss Trader Joe's <laughs> because everyone is so nice. Yeah. And how does that happen? It's, it's not, I mean, I, I don't know if they actually have a procedure for hiring nice people. I suspect that's not the answer. I suspect the answer is that when you create an environment where people are appreciated, where people are recognized, and where there's a culture of respect and positivity, that people are going to enjoy working there, and they're going to contribute to that culture and enhancing it. I've never bought Zappos shoes, but I'm told that, that the culture there is, is one that's much the same. They encourage people. On the other hand, there was a story in the news uh, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was in Oregon, that a, I'm not sure I can remember the details, a person called into a bank and they needed something and for some reason they couldn't access their account and the, 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 the bank representative who took the call asked her manager for permission to go to this person's house to actually help them with whatever their problem was and, and both of these representatives of the bank got fired. Oh, how interesting. Apparently, they were subsequently rehired by other organizations that were very excited by their, their attitude and their ethic. But, you know, this idea, if you, if you color outside the lines, you're going to be penalized for it. Well, wait a second. Maybe we can, we can incorporate a humanity into our business model that is going to expand our connection with the public, and it's going to enhance the experience of all the people who are working for us. That idea is really interesting that you mention in terms of human beings having the knowing, having the knowledge of what is right, of what is ethical, and simply needing to be within a culture that is reminding and reinforcing and encouraging this ethically grounded community. So I'm curious if you could paint a picture for us in terms of the work that you do, the ideas that you bring into a workplace, and how some of these ideas can be implemented and utilized to promote a more communicative and pleasant culture. Well, I, I have a book called Proverbial Beauty, uh, Secrets for Success and Happiness from the Wisdom of the Ages. And, and what I've done is I've taken uh, a number of excerpts from King Solomon's Book of Proverbs. And one of the things King Solomon teaches us, not in Proverbs, but in, in Kohelis and Ecclesiastes, is there's nothing new under the sun. And that all the ideas that we need are already available to us. We mentioned this before. And the challenge we have with, with King Solomon is that his language is 3,000 years old. And sometimes it's difficult to apply it directly to our situations. What I've tried to do is to take out a few excerpts and demonstrate how he is guiding us to recognize how 
aspects of our lives that we would naturally interpret as negatives can be seen as positives. So for instance, conflict. We see conflict as a negative. But what does King Solomon say? Iron sharpens iron, and one person sharpens the mind of another. Uh, I talked about this in my TED talk, that, that Beis Hill and Beis Shammai, the two great Talmudic academies of 2,000 years ago, were told that when they argued in the study hall, they were so ferocious, it was as if they fought with swords and spears. But it never became personal. They, they were friends. They married their sons and daughters to each other. They had tremendous respect for each other because they recognized the intellectual integrity and the moral integrity. And they ultimately, they wanted to get to the truth. And that clashing of ideas as, as passionate and sometimes as you know, uh, warlike as it may have seen in the study call, it was in fact bringing them closer and closer to understanding the truth and in the process understanding each other. Even though they may not have agreed in the end, they had a greater respect for one another's ideas. So imagine if we have that approach to solving problems in the workplace, instead of it being me and my ego against you and your ego, and one of us has to win and one of us has to lose. What if we say, rather, let's look at how we can take what's true and what's valuable in each of our ideas and, and, and integrate that into a, a new kind of, of unity or singularity that we can use to accomplish more than, than either of our ideas would have accomplished individually. Imagine if, if with that type of an idea, what that does for a workplace, for a community, for politics, for business, for society. It's a really interesting idea of coming together and the potential for even conflict to promote innovation and creativity and collaboration. So I'm curious if, I'm curious how that pans out in the workplace. I think so often, especially when we talk about like a political conflict, when someone has met with an opponent, in my episode last week, we spoke a little bit about my guest, Brad Yates, was speaking about how when someone is met with a, an opposing idea, there's a natural stress response that can take place. And I'm curious in the workplace if there are certain methods or perhaps protocols that can be put into place to encourage or support open dialogue and the meeting of the minds, if you will. Yeah, in fact, I was just just listening to an audiobook talking about this. They don't necessarily call it brainstorming, but the idea of of coming up with not one idea but multiple ideas. Brain dumping. Yeah, or you know, just just options. Okay. I, if I have a list of options, then I'm not invested in a single one of them. If I have one idea, this is my idea. This is what I think is going to work. So now my ego is all wrapped up in that. And now it's a, a binary option. Either I get my idea across and I win, or I don't get my idea across and I lose. And if there are flaws in my idea, I don't want to hear them because they, that's some sort of reflection on me and my inadequacy. Whereas if I come up with a, with, a, with a slate of options and this one doesn't make it, well, that one might. Or maybe you have an idea on your slate of options that's similar or that complements something that I've come up with, and we could put the two together and get them to work. Or maybe just the discussion of options will generate new options that none of us had before. Uh, my younger son works at, as an investment banker at JP Morgan, and, and when he was new on the job, they took them on one of these uh, team building exercises. And uh, you know, my son, he's, he's uh, thin as a rail. He's, uh, he's, uh, he's a bit of a character, a personality boy. And he's surrounded by all these alpha males who are, you know, okay, this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it, and this is what's going to work. <laughs> and, uh, and they're all banging into each other. And he found a way with his sense of humor and his easygoing attitude of becoming the peacemaker. And say, well, hang on, you've got a good idea here, and you've got a good idea there, let's put those two together. And, and this is what has really helped him in his, in his career, that that's a valuable skill because that, without that, all those other ideas are really never going to prove productive. 
because they're going to end up generate more, generating, more, generating more acrimony than actually constructive progress. This is a really beautiful idea in terms of rising above the ego for the sake of the greater whole. And I think we, we all have a lot to learn from that. On page 130 of your book, Proverbial oh Beauty, okay, <laughs> it says, according to Talmudic tradition, every human being has two hearts. The first heart symbolizes the promptings of emotional impulse and desire. The second heart symbolizes the human conscience, the inner voice that reminds us that we are fundamentally spiritual beings guided by virtue and honor and the ideals of love. Just as the heart is the source of our physical vitality, ceaselessly pumping our life's blood through our bodies, so too is it the source of all physiological, emotional, and spiritual impulses. The perpetual conflict between our two hearts is the essence of our humanity, forcing us into dynamism through continuous mediation between the yearning for gratification and the calling of conscience. Now, I, I think that really sums up the essence of conflict, that conflict is more than an interpersonal conflict. It's truly an intrapersonal conflict. Am I understanding this correctly? Oh, absolutely. And, and the sages give us a classic example of this. What if a person has a violent nature? You know, what, if, what if I am drawn to violence, to bloodletting? Well, I could become a murderer. I could become a serial killer. I could also become a butcher. I could become a surgeon. In fact, uh, a number of years ago, I had to go through open heart surgery. They discovered I had a hole in my heart and uh, cut me open right down the middle, spread my ribs. And uh, the doctor went in and patched up this hole in my heart. Well, he was describing what he was going to be doing to my wife, who was much more concerned about this than I was. And, and he, she, she was really just sort of taken by his passion. He says, I just love going inside people. Wow. And, you know, well, why not? You're supposed to love your work. And then why, why should it? I'd rather have a surgeon who, who, who's enjoying what he's doing than somebody who's waiting to get out as quickly as possible. But, you know, a, a moil, somebody who, who does circumcisions, a, a warrior, because unfortunately there's, there's a conflict in the world. People do have to go to war. There's so many avenues for channeling what might be negative and destructive impulses into positive and constructive avenues. And, and it's, a constant, it's a constant struggle of our inner natures. Because we're going to be pulled in one direction, we're going to be pulled in the other direction, and we're going to have to manage that over the course of our lives, each person according to his or her own unique predispositions. Well, this is a really profound idea for all of us to take to heart in, in really any moment. And I'm curious how the universal wisdom of, of the Torah, so you and I share a common interest the book that I wrote recently, and so much of my work is focused on sharing some of these universal ideas within Torah. Many of them have been locked away in a variety of different foreign languages, as you know, for, for many hundreds, thousands of years. And now we have really the, the, the box is opening and we have access now to, to so many documents from around the world and it's really tremendous and there there is so much universal value as i believe so i'm curious if you could share with us what types of ideas from the torah or practices have universal relevance in your eyes what types of practices can help with this struggle that you describe so beautifully in your book Oh, uh, I, I guess <laughs> the question really is, what, uh, what isn't addressed? Because, you know, that's, that's what the word Torah really means. It means instruction. Uh, the Torah is a guide for life. And as we already mentioned, it, it's not limited to being a guide for Jews. It's, it's a guide for humanity. It's, 
you know, there, there was a, a survey done a few years ago. You know, they have these periodic happiness surveys. And I'm always a little suspicious of, of how they measure happiness. But that's something else we could talk about as well. Of course. <laughs> but one of these studies that was done, it came out that the happiest group of people in the world are, are Orthodox Jews. <laughs> um, you know, and, and you're talking about communities, many of people who are living at or in many cases below the poverty line, often with, with large families, often with tremendous demands on their time, on their attention, on their energy, on their, on their material and psychological resources. You know, shouldn't the people who are happy be people who are, you know, living on, a, on an exotic island somewhere or people on a cruise ship or people with, with lots of disposable income? You know, the, 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 the articulation that I think is becoming more and more recognized and it's, it's what, again, what I talk about in my book is that happiness, and I think uh, if we're going to blame somebody, maybe we could blame Thomas Jefferson for you know, his, his ringing phrase about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It, it's, such a, it's such a profound misconception to think that happiness is something we can or should pursue. Because what is happiness? Happiness is the sense of making progress in life of being committed to something that has value and feeling that I am moving forward in the fulfillment of the purpose for which I was created. And from that emerges a natural feeling of happiness. That's what joy is. My life means something. I'm making a contribution. I, there's, I, I validate my existence. And when we live a life of purpose, we are naturally going to be happy. And the way to live a life of purpose is first to identify a goal that's worth pursuing, and second, to have some sort of guide of how to attain that goal. And that's what the Torah provides for us. You know, going back to, to business for a moment, see if you can answer this one. Where, where's the first recorded place in human history of Advice for a CEO. I, oh, interesting. I think it would be, well, I, I'm going to have to guess. It's, it's in the Torah, really. And I, I think it would be Moses' Moses's father-in-law told him to delegate rather than taking on the full responsibility as a leader for a people, he was instructed to delegate responsibility. I would Excellent. think that's, that's the answer. Well, that's, that's definitely is one, but it's not the first one. <laughs> okay. Right? The first one, you have to go all the way back, literally to the beginning, right? when God oh. says, let, let us make man in our image. Well, who's he talking to? He's talking to his celestial court. He's talking to his angels. Well, why is he, why is he including them? He's God. He doesn't need their advice. He doesn't need their input. He's got this planned out. It's his power and not theirs. But what, is, what he's doing is he's teaching leaders that will come later. This is how you lead. You build consensus. You include everyone on your team in the discussion. You listen to other people's ideas. One, because that's what makes people feel empowered and appreciated and respected, and they want to contribute. And two, if you're not God, which most of us aren't, maybe somebody has an idea that you haven't thought of. Maybe they'll recognize a flaw in your plan or something that can be improved in your plan. And by bringing your team into the decision-making process, you're going to have a much better probability of reaching successful conclusions and, again, of creating a culture that is going to lead to further success. That's really beautiful, the idea of humility, that even in the creation of the world, there was humility yeah from god <laughs> it's what a beautiful idea you know it's funny i was contacted today on a form on my website someone who was listening to the podcast and she said that i mentioned torah she 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 spelled it a little bit differently than than i usually spell torah t o r a h 
and she had spelled it T-H-O-R-A, something like this. It was clear that she had never heard the word before. And she said, you speak about teaching and learning Torah, and I'm curious where I can find out more about this. <laughs> and I paused, and I haven't responded to her yet because I wasn't quite sure where to start. So maybe we can talk about that for a minute. Where do we start? Where do we start with sharing these ideas of Torah with people who are unfamiliar? That can be a challenge. Um, you know, I, I was, it just reminds me, I, I was at times I lead an, an introductory prayer service on, on the Sabbath. Oh, that's so nice. And I, 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 on one day I, I asked a group of people who were there to look up a certain verse in, in, in the Torah, in the, in the Chumash, in the Bible. And one, uh, a woman who was, you know, well into middle age said, well, how do I find that? And I had, I had referenced chapter and verse. She didn't know how to look up chapter and verse in the book. And Oh, I've been there before. I have been there. <laughs> it, it's, it's really, I'm not quite addressing your question yet, but... It, very often we take for granted that other people understand a starting point where we think they should be when in fact they're not there yet. And, and then whatever we tell them ends up being irrelevant because they're not ready to process or absorb the information they're giving, we're giving them. Oh, yes, 100%. In the world of education, this is called the expert novice problem. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Very good. And, 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 you know, it's not easy. It's not easy to bridge that gap when, you know, when we're used to certain content vocabulary. And, and, and so that really brought me pause when I was asked today to share more about Torah. And I, I, I'm wondering where do, really, where do I start? I think that I started in my book, I started, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna share that with her. But I'm curious, by way of ethics, and by way of values, and the work that you do, and what you've written, and what you speak about, what are some of the key ideas that we can share with people who are perhaps not familiar with, with Torah? And I think you've already given us a lot of food for thought in terms of a starting point. I'm just curious if there's anything, anything else that comes up for you. I don't know if there's one single way of approaching it. I think a lot of it may have to do with the audience. If you're, if you're talking to a, you know, I've had, I've had Christians ask me, why don't Jews believe in Jesus? And I handle the question differently depending upon the circumstances. Uh, I don't believe that there's any benefit in interfaith debate. I certainly don't want to dispossess Christians of their faith. I think the world's a better place when more people are people of faith. I don't want to dodge the question because then it looks like I'm being evasive. I was actually, I was at a few miles from St. Louis. We have Scott Air Force Base. And a friend of mine was the chaplain and he invited me and my family to be on the base for Rosh Hashanah, for the Jewish High Holidays, and uh, to lead the service for them. And we, we had, you know, we had a very small group, and there were a lot of chaplains' assistants that were helping us, and, and they were primarily Christians. And I know this is one, yo one young woman, every time I, I looked at her way, she seemed to be looking at me very intently. <laughs> and uh, at one point she kind of cornered me off to the side, and, and she asked me this question. And I went ahead and gave her a sort of clinical answer. And she was, she was rather surprised that I knew as much about Christianity as I did. I, I think that she thought that if, that the, the, only real, the only real reason that I wouldn't believe as she did is because I didn't understand where she was coming from. And I, could, I felt I could see from the expression on her face and her response afterwards that, well, wow, he actually knows what I was going to tell him. <laughs> so it, I just, I'm just sort of 
musing over this because if someone is truly a seeker of knowledge of information, then in the course of the conversation, you're going to find out where their starting point is or should be. This is going to be more complicated if you're, if you're you know, going through emails. Uh, it's going to take more time and more back and forth. But see, you, you use terminologies. As you talk about the five books of Moses. Does someone know what that means? I was, I was walking down the street with some friends in, in, I think I was in Kyoto, Japan. And we passed in front of a church. And this woman, this Japanese Christian woman, came out and, and she was talking to us. And she was asking my two friends about their faith, and they were Christians. And she asked me, what are you? And I said, Jewish. And she didn't know what the word meant. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I kept trying to find some <laughs> reference point. I finally said, Israel. And she said, oh, you're from Israel. Well, I wasn't. <laughs> that, was just, that was as close as I was able to get. I suppose if I could have sat down with her for, for an hour or two, um, maybe we could have gotten a little closer. But you have to, I guess the starting point really is a long way of, of answering your question. If it's even an answer, the, the long way is really to sit down and find out what they know and what they don't know. Find out what your common, your common points of reference are and then figure it out from there. Looking for our common points of reference. So on that note, when you speak about people of faith and your affirmation that the world needs more people of faith, what is it that these people have? How do you define this faith? And what about this faith is so good for our world? Well, an idea that I've been working on for a while, and I think actually just in the last week or so, taken a few steps forward and articulating it, what's the difference between morality and ethics? I've been asked this a number of times, and I think that really it provides a key to avoiding some of the natural impediments that we'll run into because if we talk about morality, I believe there's an element of faith that's involved, uh, especially in the term that we use today, moralizing, which is often a pejorative. I don't moralize. Well, why shouldn't I moralize? Well, because what it sounds like I'm doing is I'm talking down to you. And in a sense, I am. Because morality is that which is handed down to us from a higher authority. Uh, ultimately, and then Judaism believes this, that even the, even the commandments that we would all agree with, don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, even those commandments, they're not wrong because we think they're wrong. We're wrong because God said they're wrong. And a code of a moral code is one that follows the teachings of a higher authority. So whether your authority is Judaism or Christianity or Islam or Buddhism or Hindu, there's some point at which I can't argue with the moral teachings of my faith. Those are immutable. And if I want to be a person of faith, I have to live up to those ideals. And that's the sense in which faith is universally good. The problem where faith poses a problem is when I'm living in a society of people who come from different faiths and who have different ask, uh, ideas about where the moral values come from. And I think then what we have to do is we have to shift to a mindset of ethics. And ethics is sort of building up from the grassroots, like we already mentioned, the teachings of Hillel. Be sensitive to how our actions are affecting others and how our actions are affecting the world we live in, because that's something that we can arrive at through some form of reason, through a kind of sincere discussion and intellectual investigation. So ultimately, in pure philosophical terms, nothing is right or wrong unless there's an authority that says so. That says so. But in a pluralistic society where we have to get along with people who don't share our moral axioms, ethics is what can empower us to find common ground and build a society where 
we are able to live together and respect one another. Do you think it's possible to live in a multicultural world and respect the individual morals of each religion, each culture, and yet coexist and come up with a common ethical code? I definitely think it's possible. There has to be a commitment to doing it. There has to be trust that is generated by all the parties involved. One of the, one of the real problems that we face in, in secular society today and, and even religious society to some degree is there's a lack of trust. There is a natural suspicion we have of people who are different from us. And a lot of that comes, and I, and I, I quote Rev. Joseph Soloveitchik in my, in my TED talk. He says that all extremism and fanaticism comes from insecurity. A person, oh, who's secure, wow. a person who's secure cannot be an extremist. So why not? Because if, I'm, if I know not only what I believe, but why I believe it, then I'm not threatened by people who believe differently. It's, you know, the sages tell us that, that senseless hatred was responsible for the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Well, what, what does the phrase senseless hatred even mean? Why do you hate somebody without a reason? Well, you hate somebody because they're different. And, and their difference makes me hate them because they, re, they make me aware of my own insecurities, of my own uncertainty about who I am. Well, wait, they're different. I'm my way. Why am I my way? Why do I believe what I believe? Why am I doing things the way I do them? I don't have good answers to those questions, so that makes me uncomfortable, and I blame them for my discomfort, and therefore I despise them. So if we would work to understand ourselves better, we'd understand other people better. And if we would work to understand other people better, we'd, we'd, be, we'd be starting to understand ourselves better as well. I love this so much. It reminds me of one of my teachers by the name of Tara Brock. I'm not sure if you've heard of her. She's a psychologist. And she talks a lot about how anger is, is really just fear. It's, it's anger is fear in disguise. And I think it speaks very much to this idea that you're, you're sharing with us, this idea of insecurity this judgmentalism and this hatred is really coming from a place of fear and fear of differences and, and fear that, that I am not okay and therefore I need to revolt. I love to listen to certain Buddhist teachers and one of the teachers, her name is Pima Chodron, she, she has a practice where she goes out and out and about in the world, and she practices looking at people, looking at strangers, and saying, I am just like you, and thinking of ways that we are the same. And so I find myself doing it now. I, I go to the boardwalk in Tel Aviv, and I see people who look different than me, and I think to myself, that woman over there, you know, this morning, she brushed her hair just like I did. There's something so connecting about shifting a little bit and remembering what we have in common. What, what I think you're doing is you, when you see yourself in someone else, you connect with that person's humanity. And that is a joyful and an empowering feeling. Because mm -hmm. we, we're here, human beings are social creatures. And, and the more connected we feel to those around us, the more secure we feel in ourselves, the more we feel part of something more than ourselves, which ultimately is, is, is what defines our existence. And so rather than looking for ways to cut myself off from other people, because that person's different, right? The person wears, wears his hair a different way or, or expresses his religion in a different style. And that's, that's, I'm not one of them. He's not one of me. We're not, we're, not, we're not compatible. Instead, look for the commonality. What's our, what's our common humanity? Now I'm, now I'm expanding myself. I'm expanding my awareness. And, and I'm feeling that expansion of self.
and it expresses itself as joy, as confidence, as, as goodwill, as, as optimism. So it's, it, there's so much of our mood, of our outlook, of our, of, our, of our attitude that we control if we simply choose to take control of it. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful to think about the idea that really learning about ethics, ethical communication can bring us joy. No doubt about it. That is, that's really something. I mean, I think so oftentimes people fear rules and regulations because they fear being too constrained or disconnected, but it sounds like what you're saying is the opposite. Um, yeah. <laughs> this really brings connection. It's a, it's a beautiful idea. So I'm curious to hear from you before we wrap up, what, if I invited you to a workplace to give a talk about anything that you're interested or passionate about, where would you go with that? Well, I mean, that's basically what I do. <laughs> and uh, what, I've, what I've done in crafting my main keynote, which depending on the audience, I, I call the, the power of, of ethical leadership or, or I call the ethical mindset. But I draw from my own experience. I talk about my my time traveling, I talk about my time teaching, and, and I find the personal lessons and experiences, again, that have universal relevance. I identify the three, what I call the three enemies of ethics, which are uh, rationalization. Right? We, we love to look for reasons that validate our preconceptions. The second one is fear, fear of the unknown, fear of being wrong, uh, fear of the consequences of our actions if we do the right thing, and deflection, which is not taking responsibility for ourselves and attributing our problems uh, problems of the world to others. We've already really touched on all of these. And the the secret, the ethical secret that that cures rationalization is, is to, I'm sorry, uh, brain freeze for a moment. So you have fear, you have rationalization, and you have deflection. Right. So, so rationalization is, is to have a sense of one's own self-worth. Oh, wow. Right? Because I, I, I tell a story from, I taught for a year, my wife and I taught for a year in Budapest, Hungary. Interesting. And, uh, yes, it was interesting. But they told us a story to help us understand the culture we were going into about a soap factory that had existed during the Soviet era where, you know, during the Soviet era, everybody had a job, but a lot of people didn't get paid enough to live on. So they had to become very creative if they didn't want to starve to death. So this entire soap factory, every member of the, of the every worker, employee from the top management all the way down, they conspired to dilute the soap solution with 3% water. So they would produce 3% more bars of soap, which they divvied up among themselves, and they sold on the black market to supplement their income. Of course, that meant that every bar of soap sold was slightly smaller than it should have been. So they were stealing a little bit of soap from lots and lots of consumers of soap. But what does this do to the culture? What does this do to the mindset? What does this do to children's values when they grow up in a society like this? Is you lose the sense of honesty and integrity. And so I use this as, a, as an allegory for diluting our own value. When we make moral compromises and we rationalize those because I have to, because everybody else is doing it, because nobody's going to notice it's a victimless crime. When I do that, I devalue my own sense of worth, which just makes me less committed to the welfares of others and to the ideals of truth and justice and honesty and integrity. And that sends me and society into a downward spiral. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. 
And so then I'll take the same idea with fear. Is, is there are lots of things to be afraid of. We're afraid of taking action. Well, what about being afraid of, of inaction? You can fight fear with fear. Balance one fear against another and retain or uh, restore a certain equilibrium. And, and when it comes to deflection, instead of blaming other people for my problems and the problems of the world, be a, be a spiritual doctor. Heal thyself. Fix, fix us wrong with me. Right? Again, King Solomon says, as water reflects one face to another, so too the heart of one person to another. When I see something in someone else I don't like, take that as a lesson that I may have some of that in me. And when I see qualities in other, in other people that I admire, what do I need to do to, to, to refashion myself in their image? Wow, beautiful. Something to really learn from everyone. It has been wonderful learning from you today. And I am hoping you can share with our listeners, where can they find you? Well, well, the best place is probably on my website, which is my name, jonasengoldson.com. Can you you spell it out for the listeners? Absolutely. Y-O-N-A-S-O-N-G-O-L-D-S-O-N.com. Perfect. Uh, I'm very active on LinkedIn and a little bit in some of the other places. Excellent. Well, this has been tremendous, and I really appreciate your taking the time to come on the show. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I've really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Pretty incredible, huh? Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. I absolutely know that all of this can be so incredibly beneficial for us in so many ways in our lives in our relationships whether it's business or personal so this week on instagram i'm going to add a feature i'm going to put something in stories where you can really ask anything you can ask about this episode send in your questions i'll repost them i'll answer them and i'm also going to put a post in my feed where you can comment ask anything about this episode, anything about the meditation circles or the other groups that I do. And you can also DM me on Instagram and I'll I'll definitely answer. That is one place to find me. You can also find me on Facebook within us podcast with Azriela Jankovic. That is the other place. And of course you can come by my website, drazi.co. That's D-R-A-Z-I you'll sign up for my weekly minute of insight newsletter and you can communicate with me that way i have an invitation for you if you've never tried a circle you can try one for free so definitely take me up on that offer the circles are really incredible and we've done so many things already in these circles and i've watched some transformations take place and you can too and you can have one too it's, uh, it's, it's, I don't even know where to start sharing these stories with you. I mean, we have a meditation circle in which we did a practice of connecting with our wiser self. So we did a beautiful meditation and there were participants who said they were, they've been going through really challenging times in their lives. They've been really worried. And through that practice, they felt and they heard very strongly a message of hope and a message of faith and calm and peace and you know it's one thing to say that but to see it and to watch it happen is just it really it keeps me inspired and that's why I love doing these so so much so that's one and you know I think that these transformations can happen to us across all areas of our lives in business too in my business masterminds this week the theme was facing fear and what's so fascinating about fears that people have most of the fears that we have are subconscious and we haven't really allowed ourselves to bring them to the surface yet but what happens when we do is that most oftentimes we see that the fears cannot be grounded in what we actually believe so i had a participant the other day who is in a helping field and she had this fear of putting herself out there and selling and making offers and she felt like it just it made her look like she was an ambulance chaser 
And so when she said it out loud and then I asked her, does sharing your work with the world and does um, talking about what you do make you look like an ambulance chaser? She said absolutely 100% no. And she had so many reasons why not, how she's out there genuinely trying to support people and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. There's everything good about that. So that was a transformation and now there she is out in the world sharing her wisdom and her support and her beauty with other people. And I love seeing that so much because if we want to make this world better, let's use what we have and let's better the world and let's show up. And, you know, I heard someone say today on one of my favorite business podcasts, Kathy Heller's uh, show called Don't Keep Your Day Job. Her guest is a copywriter and she said, if you want to help the economy, go make money. Go make money because then you can spend money and you can support all the people and buy all the things that you want to buy. And, you know, if you want to help the economy, don't become part of the problem. So I know there are a lot of people out there who are like worried about charging money for whatever they do in a time like this or pivoting, how to pivot right. But I think that advice is just so solid and so strong. And I see it in the members of my groups that are putting themselves out there in really meaningful ways. And it brings good. It brings only good. Tapping into purpose and showing up to offer the people who need something, to offer them what they need, to help them with what they need, whether it's a product or a service, whatever it is. So that's a bit about my groups. And I just love that you're here. I love that you listen every week, that you come back, that you share. You've been writing reviews that are so touching. And I've been getting so many messages on Facebook and Instagram and emails about the circles and about the podcast and questions. So I want to be here for you. I'm, I'm just trying to think of more and more ways for how I can do that. I was asked recently to facilitate a, a group of people who are uh, Israel-minded. They want to move to Israel and they want some coaching. And I'm so happy to do it. You know, just last week we have had my husband's brother and family living here in Israel for the last year and unfortunately didn't work out and they moved back. And it's pretty heartbreaking for me. It's been a pretty sad week in that regard. But I want to do whatever I can and use whatever I've learned and bring in all the people who know everything that we need to know about this journey and, and share it. So I have an open house coming up. That's exciting for those Israel-minded. I can put a link to that in the show notes. And I'm also going to do a really informal Q&A about mental health. So many of you have reached out to me to share your journeys with me. And I'm so blown away by your strength and your vulnerability, your honesty. And some of you have this happy ending and others of you are still struggling. But wherever you are, you know, we are really in this together. So I'm going to create a Q&A. I just posted on Facebook to see who's interested. Tons of interest. I'm not sure when that's going to be, but if you want to be there, if you want to be a part of it, let me know. You know where to find me. You have my details. Check them in the show notes. Thank you for being here. Yonasan is awesome. Connect with him. His details are in the show notes. And as always, every blessing to you. Wherever you are in the world, meet yourself with kindness. Until next time.